to us how God first intervened to those, excuse me, to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will, re I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from a long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat or strangled animals, and from blood. <clears throat> For well, the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Thank you, sister. So first question is who has a family tradition that they just can't let go of? Is there something that you guys do on a regular basis that you're just unwilling to part ways with? In, in my family, um, and, and like many of us, my family is all over the country. Uh, well, but when we come together, usually there's a meal. <laughs> and when there's a meal, uh, you know, somebody usually gives thanks for the food. But then my sister insists that everybody say, God is good and God is great. <laughs> Let us thank him for our food. It doesn't matter if you're a visitor or whatever, everybody has to say that in unison or you don't get to eat. <laughs> Anybody else? Okay, well, I'll share. In, in our family, one of the things that uh, we adopted is a carryover from my wife's family is on Sunday, we don't listen to, you know, any worldly music or anything like that. You know, we spend the entire day trying to focus on the Lord. That was something I, I picked up from her and it's, it's been our family practice uh, since the day we were married. And it, it, I, I hope it's paying dividends with the children. Um, all right, so let's go ahead and lean into the text here. First question, why was circumcision a constant point of contention in the early church? Why was circumcision a constant point of contention in the early church? Was it just like one of our traditions that we have, this brother here? Well, since it was set down uh, between God and Abraham that he would mark all of his people by performing that act, it was seen as you can't be part of God's people unless you were circumcised. So when suddenly Christianity came and they were welcoming a lot of the Gentiles, the Jews were like, hey, how can these people be God's people as well if they haven't been circumcised? They felt like that was like the first thing you need to do to become part of God's people. But, you know, Christ says other, otherwise, so. All right, so part of this is a matter of authority, right? We look at verse one, it says, some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Who are these certain men from Judea? Who are we talking about? If you recall, Judea is kind of the heart of the Jewish, the Jewish 
portion of the church, right? The gospel was preached there first. All right, let's go to Galatians chapter two, verses 11 through 12. If somebody could read that for us. And while they're getting that, I'd like to say in, in studying for this, in preparation for this, a lot was made uh, in commentaries about James and his role in Judea and how prominent, uh, how much, how much uh, influence he had on the church there. And we kind of see that at the, at, at the end of this uh, section of scripture that we're studying today. But what I really want to highlight is that that influence and the Jewish traditions that still resided in Judea were kind of being proselytized uh, throughout the region. And, and that's why you have some of these issues. But if someone could read Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12 for me. Right. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Okay, so you have Peter, an apostle, right? Who, an apostle who has done great miracle, right? In Jesus' name. And he's afraid of the circumcised, right? And then you ha have here that these certain men came from James. Obviously, James was also in, in Judea. So you could, you could draw a link there that in Judea, there was, there was this tradition still going of following Mosaic law and following Mosaic principles. And they were trying to push that, push that uh, form of doctrine on others. So this is kind of like some, some form of uh, Pharisaic baggage, but it's a big deal. And it's a big deal because it's a salvation issue, right? They're literally telling Gentiles that they cannot be saved unless they're circumcised. Hold on, Chuck. He's the one that brought the word to the, to the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. That he, he's, yeah, he's the one that brought the word to the Gentiles and he's the one that's enforcing this. And, and Paul had to go to him and say, you're wrong. Right. That, okay, so that brings up something else. With regard to this, you know, contention, what about Paul's authority? We read further down, it says that Paul and Barnabas and others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about the issue. Why wasn't Paul's word good enough? Paul was an apostle, correct? Okay, so, so you have this, this other piece here is where Paul's apostleship is constantly challenged and Brent and um, Farron have talked about this uh, throughout the study. But you see that Paul's apostleship is, is constantly challenged up to this point, right? And so it, it, it's not just a, um, a salvation issue, right? It's also an authority issue. So where's the authority coming from? Is authority just derived from what the brothers in Judea have to say? Or is it, you know, the, the church writ large? Is it solely the apostles? Or is it the apostles and the elders? So there's quite a bit of confusion here, not just with salvation, but also with regard to authority. So the next question is, what is the purpose of the meeting in Jerusalem? And why is this meeting significant? What was the purpose of the meeting in Jerusalem? And why was this meeting significant? 
You'll see there in verse six, the apostles and elders gathered to consider this matter, the matter of circumcision. So after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them. So you have Peter being the, one of the first ones to, to stand up and speak to everyone in terms, of, in terms of authority. But why were they all gathered there? To discuss the matter about whether or not the Gentiles should be circumcised. Right. What is the significance of this meeting? And maybe we can look further, look further into it, not just at the circumcision piece, the action that's taking place. Go ahead, Steve. Well, any of the apostles have authority, but if you've got a group of authorities, well, then that carries you know, more weight. Apparently, you can't get any higher up on on the physical level for someone speaking, uh, you know, with authority for you know what is actually going to be. Um, uh, the final word in these matters, whether it's you know economic or spiritual or what, you just go to the highest group you can find. Yeah, someone else over here. I think this shows the church working out and building unity. You had two groups of men that were both teachers that were respected that everybody wanted to follow, and we have a disagreement. There can only be one truth, so this could have divided the early church right there. It shows a lot of maturity that instead of them battling it out with each other, they went back with a group of leaders and came up with a unified decision that Paul, I believe, would have accepted whatever decision was to come out of it, even though Paul knew he was in the right, but having that unity of decision-making built unity within the church instead of splitting it. Yes. Yeah, one more right here, Mark. going to Jerusalem to settle was because the Jews were trying to bring over in the law as part of Christianity and the law had been put out of the way and a new law was in and that law was under Christ and circumcision was not required under that law but the Jews wanted to mix the Mosaic law in with Christianity. So this is a critical decision point in the history of the church, right? You have, you have this issue that's driving a wedge between the brothers and sisters in the early church. And so like brother just said, everyone decided the best thing to do was to come together and address the issue, right? As leaders within the church, their objective was to quell all the contention, but more importantly, to find a solution that was gonna be unifying. And we see that throughout. And that's that's the key here. They're coming together and they're putting in all this effort to bring unity of the faith. So one, one more thing I have here is a sub-question to question two. Were James or Peter in need of persuasion from Paul and Barnabas? If we read further down, you have Paul and Barnabas describing all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles in verse 12. After they stopped speaking, James responded. So why was there a need for Paul and Barnabas to lay all this out to everyone? 
and to say, look, you know, we were performing all these miracles amongst the Gentiles. Why was there a need for them to, to make sure everyone knew about this? And if you recall, this is Paul's first missionary journey. And this is really him, the first time he's giving some kind of report back to all the church leadership of what happened on the journey. So remember also going into this, they don't know all the details of that journey. So these brothers here assembled, they're still finding certain new things out. So where, do you think James or Peter were in need of some form of persuasion here? Yeah, I, I think they were a little bit because, you know, Peter and James, they were really focused on the Jews and that, you know, that, that was their upbringing. That was who they were ministering to. That was who they thought about all the time. And it's hard to think about people outside of your realm if you don't have some sort of external factor. And I think that's where Paul and Barnabas came in is they provided this other perspective of, you know, these Gentiles are also people that are part of um, the, the purpose of the gospel. And, and they serve that purpose to reiterate, hey, the Gentiles are still here. We still need to minister to them. You know, their concerns are still valid. And uh, it's hard to remember that other people's concerns are still valid whenever you don't think about them all the time. So what we're looking at here, go ahead, bro. I think, uh, I, think um, I think Cephas still had to be um, brought back to the realization that he's a Jew, but you're justified in Christ. Your justification don't come from your Judea, Judaism. It comes from your relationship with Christ. So this kind of goes back to in the, in the, uh, what we read from Galatians, right? In Galatians chapter two, verse 11 and 12. There's still this perception that Gentiles are unclean. It is very hard for the Jews to shake that notion. So with Paul and Barnabas providing, you know, this background on, on what actually happened on their missionary journey, it helps to dispel those, you know, preconceived notions about Gentiles being unclean or whether or not Gentiles need to become more Jewish in order to be saved, right? So I think you're right. There, there was some level of convincing there that needed to uh, be done, but it seems like it should be unnecessary for what you said earlier. I mean, you know, Peter was the first one, you know, he baptized Cornelius in his household. He of all people should know, right? So you still, but there's still this fear of backlash from their own community, like you were just saying. So question number three, what is your biggest takeaway from Peter's speech? If someone can read it again for us, starting in verse seven and going all the way through verse 11. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. 
they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Then Cephas came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Just a moment, brother. We're looking at Acts chapter six or chapter 15, oh, my fault. verse six through oh, my verse fault. 11. Excuse me. Acts chapter 15, verse six through 11. I'll go ahead and read it. Thank you. The apostles and elders gathered to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers and sisters, you're aware that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. So Peter finds his backbone again here, right? So you have Peter, you know, shirking away when, you know, men came from James, right? But now you have Peter finding his backbone again. And, and, you know, you see this, this is actually the last time Peter is mentioned in the book of Acts. And, and so that's, that's kind of an interesting thing where he's the last time, you know, we read about Peter in the book of Acts, he is affirming, he is affirming that the Gentiles were subject to the same grace as the Jews. I think that's pretty remarkable in, in terms of if, if you look at everything that, you know, we experience with Peter, this is the last thing we read about him in the book of Acts. But he says a couple of things here that are really important. He says there's no difference between them and us. He says we shouldn't tempt God. He said we can't, we shouldn't, you know, put this unbearable yoke on them. He said they believe in the same Lord and his grace. So Peter is calling for submission to God's will and grace versus his own opinion, his own perspective, or his own personal convictions. So question number four, what patterns regarding salvation in the church throughout history do you see emerging in Acts chapter 15? Specifically with regard to salvation throughout history. Maybe that, uh throughout history people are always trying to put constraints on how you know to you're saved and how you obtain salvation through christ like here it's with circumcision like they're always trying to put these constraints on it and you can't be saved if you don't do this that and the third and um chapter 15 in paul's speech it just shows it takes you back to to you know, Jesus says that through your faith, you obtain salvation. And as long as you believe And last week, or not last week, several weeks ago, we also talked about the great equalizer, how we're all equal in Christ. And he also uh, re-emphasized that, so. Steve? 
I was raised a Catholic, and I see Catholicism, you know, in that question all over the place. Because, you know, even now, if you uh, ask what you know, by what authority does the Catholic Church ask, you know, act, they'll say, well, Scripture and the Holy Roman Church, and they'll put that right there alongside what God wants, and so they've elevated themselves up through time and tradition, and so it's been basically encased uh, so that it uh, has equal authority with, you know, the Word of God itself. And so, you know, that was going on through, you know, Middle Ages all the way through to today. So, so because of this, because, because there was an unwillingness just to focus on God's word, we have this constant spin cycle of, of folks questioning how they could be saved. Do you have a comment? So we have people constantly, we have a comment over here, Mike. Back here. Okay, can you hold on for a second? So the folks can hear on Facebook and Zoom. Oh, I guess I have a question. Uh, did salvation emerge after Christ through the centuries or once Christ, uh, once the church was established on Pentecost, salvation was basically the same? That is, Although it doesn't mention all the five steps in Acts, but some of them is actually known as far as the Jews on Pentecost, they knew what they had done. They knew about Christ, so they didn't have to hear about it. So they repented mm -hmm. and uh, then they confessed that, you know, they knew it was Lord, they were baptized. So there was no emerge, you know, throughout. Right, so there was no- Is that correct? There was, that, that is correct. There's no need to deviate, right? So that, that brings us to the next question in, in Acts uh, chapter 2 and verse uh, 38. The next question says, what relevance does the law of Moses have to us as Christians? Are we to follow any of these laws? Now, specifically with regard to salvation, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, when were those Jews saved? They were saved when they were immersed, right? Okay, so knowing that they, just like you were just saying, sister, knowing that they were saved when they were immersed, they still tried to go back and, and, put, and put circumcision as part of it as well. It, it's hard for us to understand why, why they were just so hung up on circumcision as the thing. It, they could have picked a whole bunch of different things, right? How many different practices were there in Mosaic law? But, you know, they, they chose circumcision because that was a distinguishing, identifying feature for the Jewish people. They could have chosen a lot of different things. And that, so this goes also back to question number four. We shouldn't constantly put God's word under scrutiny. If God's told us to do something, we just need to submit to that and obey it. But because of our cultures, because of our traditions and things like that, we can inject things into the church and make it seem like it's you know part of God's policy when it's really our own personal policy, right? This kind of goes back to the opening question about, you know, having that thing that you just can't go, having that tradition, you just can't let go, right? Just can't let go of that tradition. But if God says you can't continue that tradition, then guess what? You can't continue that tradition. So it's a, it's a matter of submission, but it's also a matter of understanding God's word. 
Yes. Well, I was going to say just along the lines of you, what you just said is that sometimes as people, we overcomplicate things and it's difficult for us to understand that the salvation, that salvation is by faith. And it's just so simple that all we have to do is just believe and, you know, we have salvation and it's difficult for people to understand. And so they feel as if they have to put all these different, you know, stipulations to it and tie all these things to it when it's not even biblical. And, and some things that God asks us to do, Brother Call has his hand up. Some things God asks us to do, just on the surface, if we were to come up with, with you know, a solution, you know, it, it would, you know, be something completely different. For example, we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday, right? And we do it to remember Jesus. Well, what do we do to remember stuff? Take pictures, right? You know, maybe, maybe if we were Jesus, we would have had somebody draw a picture of us and be like, all right, I'll make a whole bunch of copies of these. And every time you pray, just look at this picture and you'll remember me. No, right? We, we partake of the bread, we partake of the fruit of the vine because that's what Jesus has asked us to do. It may not always make sense to us. And it may be hard for us to let go of certain, you know, customs or certain traditions that we have. We still have to let go of those to, to be submissive to God. Go ahead, Carl. Yeah, I think that we have to also be careful not to try to oversimplify things because we know that faith comes about hearing and hearing by the word of God. But if we say all we have to do is believe and leave it there, we fall short because even Jesus, though he were son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. So we have to do more. I mean, the devil believes. So believing is good. We also have to repent and confess and be baptized. So I'm just saying that it is salvation is simple, but if we oversimplify it, we can fall short. Okay, so as we get ready to close out, there's there's a, a relationship between James' statement in Acts 15 verses 19 through 21 and Paul's uh, statement in Romans 14 14 through 21. So if someone can get Acts chapter 15, 19 through 21 for us and read that, and if someone else can get for us Romans chapter 14, verses 14 through 21. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from meat of strange animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the early times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So these practices are talking about uh, the eat, uh, you know, eating blood or drinking blood. This even predates the law of Moses, God telling, telling us not to engage in these things. Predate the law of Moses. I, I believe it goes all the way back to Genesis 9. Somebody can correct me on that. But 
that's important to understand. So this is some, these are, these are practices by Gentiles that the Jews find absolutely abhorrent, right? They, it is, is so off-putting. And then also, um, you know, abstaining from things polluted by idols, sexual immorality. These are all practices of the Gentiles, right? That are extremely off-putting for Jewish people. So James offers this up as a way for Gentiles to conduct themselves so as they don't be off-putting to their Jewish brothers and sisters. And none of this is out of line with what God expects us to do, right? So if someone could get Romans chapter 14, you have it? Yes. I know and I am convinced, persuaded as one in the Lord Jesus that nothing is forbidden as essentially unclean, defiled, and unholy in itself. But nonetheless, it is unclean, defiled, and unholy to anyone who thinks it is unclean. But if your brother is being pained or his feelings hurt, or if he is being injured by what you eat, then you are no longer walking in love. You have ceased to be living and conducting yourself by the standard of love towards him. Do not let what you eat hurt or cause the ruin of one for whom God, Christ died. Do not therefore let what seems good to, to you be considered an evil thing, but someone else. In other words, do not give occasion for others to criticize that which is, just, is justifiable for you. After all, the kingdom of God is not a matter of getting the food and drink one likes, but instead it is righteousness, that state which makes a person acceptable to God, and heart, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. He who serves Christ in this way is acceptable and pleasing to God and is approved by men. So let us then definitely aim for and eagerly pursue what makes for harmony and for mutual unbuilding, edification and development of one another. You must not forsake a food undo and break down and destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed ceremoniously clean and pure, but it is wrong for anyone to hurt the, the conscience of others or to make them fall by what he eats. The right thing is to eat no meat or drink no wine at all or do anything else if it makes your brother stumble or hurts his conscience or offends or weakens him. Okay, so what's the connection between that and what we hear James say in his statement in Acts chapter 15? There's a direct correlation between certain cultural differences, right? So Paul's laying out, you know, he's, he's talking about the eating of meat, all right? And he's, he's talking about it, um, you know, with, with relations to, you know, some of the practices of Gentiles. But what he's telling them is, what he's telling them is not to make your brother or sister stumble because of your own personal actions, right? So if you know something's offensive to your brother and sister, even though you know it not to be sin, should you partake in that if it's gonna cause your brother or sister to stumble? Now, for James and, and for what we read in Acts chapter 15, it's an even bigger issue, right? Because it's, it's driving this wedge, it's specific to salvation, right? But there are other wedges that can be derived from you know, different cultural nuances and things like that, that Paul's referring to. And, and what Paul's calling for us to be more conscious of our actions when dealing with one another, right? More sensitive to, to, to the, the differences between our cultures, you know, like, like uh, the example that Carl gave earlier. We all think that, just as Carl does, I think, 
it's pretty silly for them to sing that song, but you know, everybody sings it because it makes his sister happy, right? It's not hurting anyone, right? So everybody, you know, sings the song. We can take it a step further with our interactions, you know, with one another, right? Maybe someone sings really loud, but not only do they sing loud, but they sing terribly, right? Should we, <laughs> I, pro I probably fall in that category, but should, should somebody go to them and be like, hey, your singing is terrible. Can you bring it down a little bit, right? No, we don't, we don't wanna put a stumbling block in front of our brother or sister. Or, you know, let's say a brother and sister, a brother or sister in Christ, you know, let, let's say there's a specific kind of meat that they like to eat all the time, right? And we go to them and, and it's, you know, always, hey, you shouldn't be doing that or, you know, you shouldn't be eating that. Well, what's, what's wrong with me liking sausage, you know? You, you, what, we don't want to discourage one another over petty things. And, and, sometimes, and sometimes that can happen if we're focused on what we want as opposed to what is going to keep us unified in Christ. So that was the focus of Acts chapter 15 is preserving, specifically this portion of it, is preserving the unity of the church, especially very early on. So what we see here is the church coming together and coming up with a solution to keep everyone together and to continue to be able to support one another. Any, any more comments? I feel like this, we all walk in our relationship with Christ, but we all have to help and develop each other to start to run in the relationship that we have with Christ. Okay. I have one more. Do you have one? Go ahead. Can't help but bring it up. One of the ironies, Paul insisted that Timothy had to be circumcised. That's exactly what I was going to say next. Yeah. Which goes right back to the unity, even though Paul made this argument for the sake of the Gentiles, he turned around and had Timothy circumcised so he could be an effective minister to the Jewish Christians that were scattered around. That's right. Let's go to Acts chapter 16 and verse 22. And then if someone else can get 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 20. What we're trying to examine is exactly what the brothers brought up. What lengths are we willing to go to to be accommodating to our brothers and sisters to, to win them over? So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20, if someone has that. First, uh, first, uh, Acts 16, 22 first, thank you. Thank you. 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. You said 1622, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe I wrote the note down wrong. Here, let me take one second here. Do you want me to do First Corinthians while you look for that one? Yes, you can do First Corinthians while I look at that. Thank you. First Corinthians chapter. What was it? Chapter what? First Corinthians. Chapter nine and verse twenty. Okay. First Corinthians chapter nine verse twenty. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. 
To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. Okay. It's Acts chapter 16, mm-hmm. and starting at verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew his father was a Greek. So we see Paul saying, you know, he he adjusts based on what he expects, you know, to encounter with his brother and sister. Now with Timothy, this is a huge adjustment, right? Timothy gets circumcised just so he can go about the ministry. Now also remember, you're talking about Paul who is about to embark on the second missionary journey here in Acts chapter 16. But in his first missionary journey, he was stoned almost to death, right? He, you know, his life was threatened constantly. And I think this is Paul saying, you know, I, I understand that circumcision doesn't save you, Timothy, but I also, you know, am concerned for your life and you're concerned for your livelihood. This is something that we need to do in order for me to, to better protect you as we go on this journey. So Paul was willing to make these kind of sacrifices. And obviously, you know, Timothy made a huge one here. So we're going to have to cut it off for today. We'll pick back up in verse 22 next week. Thanks, everybody, for all your comments and all your questions. Remember, if you haven't taken the survey, the women's ministry survey, please do that for us. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Brother Demetrius. Thank you.